You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. It's a great pleasure to be here. I've been asking myself, what, what is Port Merion? Is it, is it Aspen Ideas with leek soup? Or is it Sun Valley with, with daffodils? I realized what it was last night. It's Davos with community singing. <laughs> and I really hope Klaus Schwab doesn't copy it. Um, as somebody whose uh, trust and privacy have been violated uh, lately, you might expect me to have strong views uh, on this subject, and I do. Um, I'm going to begin with uh, one of the great Victorian theorists of trust, Walter Badgett editor of The Economist, author of Lombard Street, still the best book about financial crises ever written. All people are most credulous when they are most happy, and when much money has just been made. When some people are really making it, there is a happy opportunity for ingenious mendacity. Almost everything will be believed for a little while. (laughs) Trust is good, ladies and gentlemen. We have empirical studies that show that there are economic benefits to trust. Here's one just uh, published this year. 10 percentage point increase in trust increases the growth rate of gross domestic product by 0.5 percentage points and the growth rate of manufacturing employment by 1.3 percentage points over a five-year period. And this isn't entirely surprising. The kind of uh, understandings, uh, the network externalities, to use jargon, that arise from trust uh, have predictable and intuitive economic benefits. Uh, Commerce has lower transaction costs when there is trust. You don't have to spend time making sure that the counterparty is not a crook. And trusting pays. Here's another study. I thought I would blind you with social science this morning, um, which is what Harvard professors are supposed to do. When people trust others, they painfully learn when other people prove to be untrustworthy. But when people refrain from trusting when the other person would have honoured their trust, they fail to learn of instances when the other person would have honoured their trust. It's asymmetrical. If you have a policy of trusting no one, you'll miss out on opportunities. Um, My grandfather was a Scottish journalist, and he had three pieces of advice that he gave me, which tell you a lot about West of Scotland uh, Calvinist culture. The first was, trust no one. The second was, tell them nothing. (laughs) And the third was, to thine own self be true. There's also a wonderful Robert Burns poem about that, but I won't go into it. The problem is um, that that mentality is costly, in fact. If you trust nobody and tell them nothing, you will, in fact, miss out on opportunities. It's better to be open. But you shouldn't be too trusting. Here's another good finding that goes to the point. Highly trustworthy individuals think others are like them, causing them to assume too much social risk, to be cheated more often, and ultimately perform less well than those who happen to have a trustworthiness level close to the mean of the population. So you want to be trustworthy and trusting at the mean, at the average level. On the other hand, the low trustworthiness types form beliefs that are too conservative and thereby avoid being cheated but give up profitable opportunities too often and consequently underperform. So that's essentially a a similar way of saying the same thing. Now, David Brooks, my good friend who writes for the New York Times, made a great point just the other day in one of his columns. 
when he pointed out that the, the meritocracy has in large measure triumphed, we're certainly more meritocratic uh, in the Western world than we were 20 or 30 years ago, much less 100 years ago. So in that sense, society has become more fair. But here's the funny thing. As we've made our institutions more meritocratic, their public standing has plummeted. We've increased the diversity and talent level of people at the top of society, yet trust in elites has never been lower. Hmm, funny that. Here's uh, some evidence. I am a data nerd, so brace yourselves. This is the first of quite a few charts I want to show you. This shows you that confidence uh, in Congress, this is trust and confidence in branches of the U.S. government, uh, is actually almost as low as trust in the executive was at the time of Watergate. Now, it's not generally realized that Congress is now trusted as little as Richard Nixon uh, was, but that is, in fact, the case. And that's important because Congress is now very powerful. Uh, It's actually, uh, in many ways, at the height of its power in modern times. People don't realize this in the UK because they think President Obama has enormous power. Uh, But he doesn't, in fact. Congress runs the United States. It's become essentially a parliamentary system, and the leaders of the Democratic Party in the House and the Senate run run the US. So it's quite important that they're regarded with about as much confidence as Tricky Dicky. Now, you won't be surprised to hear that two-thirds of Americans distrust Sarah Palin as a source of information uh, on global warming. I think they're probably wise to do that. But it's interesting that 53% distrust Al Gore on the same subject, and 49% distrust President Barack Obama. So politicians in the United States, right across the spectrum, uh, from right to left, are viewed with great skepticism uh, on this and, of course, on many other issues. That was just an example. Okay, here's some cool stuff that you probably don't know. Trust uh, uh, is correlated to income. Here's a, a whole bunch of people who were asked... If you lost a wallet that contained 200 bucks and it was found by a neighbor, do you think it would be returned with the money in it or not? And it's higher income people who expect it to be returned, whereas if you're on less than $24,000, it's 50-50. Only half of people expect the wallet to be returned. It's a function, of course, these things are correlated closely of education as well. 81% of people with a degree expect that their neighbor would return the wallet whereas 48% without uh, any academic qualifications expect it. There's a racial dimension to this. Again, that's correlated to wealth and education. Uh, But again, you can see there's a significant difference between non-Hispanic whites who trust their neighbors much more than African Americans do, who have a very low trust of their neighbors. Uh, And there's some, although less, uh, striking correlation uh, in age group uh, trust. So young people are much less trusting uh, than people... Uh, in their 60s and older. Now, when I was feeling a little bit uh, uh, unhappy with the British media uh, in the recent weeks, I was consoled to discover uh, that public trust in journalists is extremely low in this country. Uh, Although it has slightly improved, essentially uh, 22% of people uh, in the most recent... uh, Ipsos Mori survey expect journalists to tell the truth, uh, and 72% expect them to lie. Um, The interesting uh, uh, statistic here is that politicians and government ministers have suffered uh, a real decline in in public trust. Uh, Politicians generally in 2008, 73% of people expected them to lie. It's now 82%. 
and that obviously reflects the scandal over MPs' expenses, which, which actually has made British politicians less trustworthy than British journalists. A major achievement. <laughs> uh, trust is uh, not particularly impressive when you look at European institutions. Uh, this is a recent Eurobarometer survey for trust in the European Parliament. Uh, only half of Europeans trust it, a third don't, and it's about the same, uh, slightly uh, different for the European Commission. Uh, if you uh, cut the data by country, it's quite interesting to see who trusts the European Commission least. You won't be surprised that only 22% of British people uh, have hostile feelings towards the Commission, but actually the French trust... trust uh, oh, actually, these aren't ranked correctly. I'm sorry, that's, that's, uh, that's misleading. So the UK is down here on 22%, and I think that's about the worst. Yes, it is. Um, What's interesting is if you look at a country like Italy, where's Italy gone? It's usually got very high trust levels. God, I can't even find it. There 50% of Italians trust the European Commission. But that's inversely correlated with their trust of their own national institutions. So basically you trust the European institutions more the less you trust your own national institutions, which uh, is a rather confidence-denting fact. Now, I was here to talk about trust in finance, and that's what I'm going to do. Um, so I... I got to know Richard Edelman recently, and uh, it's, uh, it's a happy coincidence that Robert presented or introduced me. Um, here's, here's a chart from the recent Edelman uh, Confidence Barometer, which is quite interesting. Because it shows you this dramatic decline in trust uh, in banks. Uh, though it's not absolutely ubiquitous, uh, it's not true in China, and it's not true in India. But there's been a massive collapse of confidence in banks uh, in the U.S., a 39% collapse in confidence in U.S. banks, which is a really striking finding. Uh, here's another bit of uh, data. The Gallup polls have recently found that, that the issue that makes Americans most angry uh, is not the deficit or partisan gridlock. It's bank bonuses followed by the banking uh, bailout. It either makes Americans angry or, or it bothers them. So here's an important point that I want to emphasize. It wasn't, in fact, public lack of trust in banks that made the financial crisis so severe. It was mutual distrust of banks by banks that made the financial crisis so severe. Uh, because in the United States there's federal deposit insurance, the phenomenon of, of bank runs by the public, which was crucial in the Great Depression, scarcely occurred. Uh, and because Europeans very quickly improvised similar schemes uh, once the crisis began in 2007-2008, uh, it really didn't become much of an issue after Northern Rock. The problem was the collapse of trust between banks. That was the credit crunch. And the best measure of that is known as the TED spread, and that's the difference between the interest rates on interbank loans and uh, the interest rate paid by the U.S. government on its short-term debt. And what happened uh, in the course of the crisis, beginning, the crisis began, although people forget this now, it actually began in the summer of 2007. Uh, you could spot it if you were an attentive uh, student of the markets in the spring, but it got underway, got noticed in the markets in the, in the summer of 2007. That's the first big spike uh, in the TED spread. It remained significantly at abnormal levels right the way through 2008. And then in September uh, uh, 2008, in, in 9.15, 9 which has completely replaced 9.11 in New, York, New York's collective memory, 
the day that Lehman Brothers' bankruptcy was announced, the TED spread uh, went absolutely off the charts and soared up uh, to vast levels. I think the peak it was was 464, nearly 465 basis points, so 4.65% spread. And that's historically very, very rare indeed. Usually the spread is, as you can see, very, very narrow, uh, just a, a few basis points. Now, why does that matter? Who cares? It matters because if there's a breakdown of trust within the financial system, the global economy stops. And it stopped. It completely stopped. What, what you may not realize is that in the aftermath of the collapse of Lehman Brothers, there was an 82% contraction in international capital flows. 82%. Trade collapsed by somewhere in the neighborhood uh, of a quarter to a third, depending what countries you look at. Global trade basically imploded more than it did in the Great Depression. So the collapse of trade in late 2008, early 2009, was more severe than occurred in the Great Depression. And anybody who knew any economic history this time last year was shit scared. It really looked as if we were in Great Depression 2.0. So trust within the financial system is hugely important. And we've just witnessed its complete uh, breakdown. Uh, here's a recent Slate article which had a great headline. I, I couldn't resist it. Trust no bankers. My grandfather would have approved. The financial industry has always been wrong about the dangers of regulation. So this issue of trust seems still to be out there. Uh, and, and one might assume, and this follows on from what Robert was saying, that we have a fundamental problem arising from this crisis that could, in fact, endanger the entire capitalist system. What's interesting is this financial crisis has, uh, has seen an absolutely classic domino effect in which a crisis in one section of the financial system has been followed by a crisis in another. I mean, it spread from the subprime mortgages into interbank lending, uh, and then it spread from interbank lending into all forms of commercial credit. One reason industrial output collapsed uh, in the world in 2008-2009 uh, in was that it then spread uh, into the realm of orders in manufacturing. If you suddenly couldn't roll over your commercial uh, paper, your short-term funding as a corporation, you had to cancel the order for a new truck uh, or a piece of machinery. So this spread like contagion right the way through the system, which is why we had the biggest financial, uh, the biggest macroeconomic shock uh, since the early 30s. It's now, interestingly, spread into the realm of sovereign debt. Because what we did in order to prevent a Great Depression was we went on a massive Keynesian borrowing spree. And these huge deficits appeared to save us. This was Paul Krugman's famous take, deficits saved us. But, of course, they didn't save us completely because they then created massive problems of credibility in public finance. And the first government to come under pressure has been Greece, if you exclude Iceland, which I suppose was the first. Here you can see a classic indicator of uh, a breakdown of trust. Uh, these are bond yields. This is the cost of finance in the capital markets. And what's happened is that whereas prior to the crisis and even right the way through to the summer of last year, the spread between Greek government bonds and German government bonds is relatively narrow. It's been narrow since the euro was created a decade ago. These spreads blew out so that Greece now is having to pay over 6%, whereas the German government, uh, when it borrows, pays less than 2%. This is about trust. 
Because these spreads basically incorporate default risk and depreciation risk. And as there's very little depreciation risk if you're in the Eurozone, it's default risk. In other words, the markets are pricing in the risk that the Greeks will default on all or part of their public debt. So it's about trust, and it's contagious. Once trust breaks down in one part of the financial system, it can break down in another part. This really matters because our entire financial system is based on trust. It, it doesn't function without measures of trust. Credit means that a certain confidence is given and a certain trust reposed. Uh, Walter Badger again. My good friend Richard Dawkins, sadly not here, uh, put it really nicely in, in one publication. Money is a formal token of delayed reciprocal altruism. I hadn't read that passage when I was trying to define money in my book, The Ascent of Money. Uh, but I ended up actually saying something very similar. Money is a matter of belief, even faith. Belief in the person paying us, belief in the person issuing the money he uses, or the institution that honours his checks or transfers. Money isn't metal or paper or anything else for that matter. It's inscribed. And the lack of trust implies, at the most basic level, losses of output and employment. It means increased and as I showed you earlier, the poorer you get, the less you trust people. So you end up quite quickly, you might think, in some kind of vicious tailspin. So why trust the system again? Why, why ever trust bankers again? How can we ever recapture what we've lost Perhaps we've had some fundamental, irretrievable loss of innocence. Never glad, confident morning at Goldman Sachs again. Uh, this cartoon, some of you may recognize, accompanied Matt Taibbi's devastating attack at Goldman, published in, of all places, Rolling Stone magazine last year. It's funny, uh, with all due respect to the Financial Times, who is, uh, which boasts some wonderful writers, Gillian Tett, Martin Wolf, did fantastic work covering uh, the crisis. And yet it was Rolling Stone that wrote the seminal, published the seminal article on the crisis, uh, which was the article in which Goldman Sachs was described as the great vampire squid. Uh, sadly, they didn't illustrate the piece with a squid. I really wish they had, uh, but, but I'm very literal-minded about illustrations, as anyone will tell you. Um, squids, actually, and, and octopuses are popular uh, in the demonology of financial history. Uh, this is a Nazi cartoon from Der Stürmer uh, of the great Jewish, there's a star of David, uh, octopus with its tentacles wrapped around uh, the world economy. Um, that's a, an, a reminder that we've lost trust in finance before. In the wake of the Great Depression, there was a massive backlash against financial institutions, and not only in Germany. Germany was the extreme case, but in fact, in most of the world, there were regulations imposed, uh, there were indeed uh, bankers prosecuted, there were very much tougher hearings in Congress than are currently going on uh, for the bankers who were seen as responsible uh, for the Great Depression. And you can go back even further. Uh, I warned uh, the people at Goldman that they should watch out for a populist backlash because I've seen this sort of thing in my research and many uh, aftermaths of financial crises. And here's a good cartoon from 1894. The English octopus, it feeds on nothing but gold. 
And this is actually an American populist cartoon uh, from the late 19th century. And what you can't make out, but I'll point it out to you, is that it has the name Rothschild. Uh, and this is a cartoon that I, I used in, in my history of the Rothschild Bank to illustrate the way in which, after major financial crises, populist <coughs> anger translates into an anti-finance state of mind that is often quite hard to separate from an anti-Semitic state of mind because of the significant over-representation of Jews in financial services uh, over the last 200 years, something I'll be talking about uh, if you're interested in it at the Jewish Book Week on Sunday night in London. Why would we trust banks again? How could we ever rid ourselves of the vampire squid image? Well, the theory of trust is, is really something that's worth studying. One of my graduate students at Harvard, Ian Klaus, is doing a wonderful uh, dissertation at the moment for his uh, PhD on trust in uh, British imperial contexts, M making the point that trust is even harder when you're trusting over thousands and thousands of miles and where you're trusting across cultural, uh, racial, uh, and linguistic uh, barriers. And so I've been reading his stuff and learning a lot from it. And part of what I'm about to show you is, is inspired by Ian. So he quotes uh, Steve uh, Shapen, who's actually a, a historian of, uh, of medicine, to trust is to join with others, or rather of science, to trust is to join with others and show estimation of their worth. To distrust is to disrupt cooperative relations and to dishonor. To trust people is to perform a moral act. So, ladies and gentlemen, perhaps we should trust bankers again as a moral act. <laughs> what do you think? No, I don't think so either. Uh, Frank Fukuyama wrote a whole book on trust uh, back in the 90s, a rather good, good book, although it's less famous than The End of History. And... Uh, he, he defined trust in a slightly different way. Trust is the expectation that arises within a community of regular, honest, and cooperative behavior based on commonly shared norms on the part of other members of that community. The problem with that definition, of course, is that once it's disrupted, it must be logically very hard to restore. On this basis, trust can only come back very slowly as we regain our confidence that our counterparties can be trusted uh, to pay up. Counterparty risk is a really interesting phenomenon. I discovered this the hard way uh, because I um, made a bet with uh, an American hedge fund manager uh, in early 2007. This is before the crisis had begun. January 2007. And he wanted to bet me that there would never be another U.S. recession. That, that tells you what the mood was like in the room at that time. Euphoria beyond... Uh, beyond euphoria. And I said, that's great, but never is a really terrible time frame for a bet. Um, so why don't we say five years? Done, he said. There will never be another recession. There will no be no recession in the United States within the next five years. And, uh, and the, he then named a sum, and, I, and it was a large sum, and I, I said, well, what odds are we talking here? Uh, and he said, oh, I don't know, 14 to 1. I said, great, I'm going to phone up some friends, and we're going to put as much money on this bet as we possibly can. And, of course, uh, uh, I won. Uh, and, of course, his hedge fund blew up. <laughs> and, of course, I discovered what counterparty risk meant at that point. <laughs> so, um, 
Here, here's a point. Again, Badgett is, is wonderful on this. And, and if you are interested in finance and haven't read Lombard Street, you really should. Uh, because it's extraordinary how it resonates today. He was such a keen observer of the London market in the first great age of globalization. Here he is again. Great firms with a reputation which they've received from the past and which they wish to transmit to the future cannot be guilty of small frauds. They live by a continuity of trade which detected fraud would spoil. This is Goldman's big problem. They are perceived to have perpetrated small, actually not so small, frauds. That's selling toxic assets that they knew to be toxic. Uh, that's uh, setting up uh, swap arrangements that concealed the extent of Greek uh, fiscal indebtedness and so on. Now, Goldman, if Lloyd Blankfein were here, would defend themselves and say they were doing things that were entirely legitimate. Uh, but the way in which they're being represented in the press, uh, not least in the New York Times, is highly damaging to their brand. Uh, and it seems to me that if trust is to be regained on the basis of performance, again, it's a very big ask. Again, it's very hard to see how, in a very short time, Goldman can reassure us that they do, in fact, play straight. Now, this was a session about trust uh, and privacy. And this gets me to the most intellectually interesting part uh, of what I have to say. So if you're feeling post-breakfast or post-hangover sleepy, um, sort of waken up at this point. <laughs> In the wake of the crisis, there has been a great deal of criticism of uh, secrecy, a lack of transparency in the financial system. And so there were attacks on tax havens, the Swiss banks were being bashed uh, for Bankgeheimnis, uh, which is German uh, for not revealing that you have deposits by African dictators on your books. Uh, Off-balance sheet vehicles, sieves, conduits, those wonderful things that concealed how leveraged the banks were. And, um, I mean, if you read uh, any of the recent accounts of the crisis, Andrew Ross Sorkin's Too Big to Fail is, a, is the best, actually, if you're, if you're interested. Um, it's the backroom deals that went on, the smoke-filled... Well, they probably weren't smoke-filled rooms. They're not, rooms aren't smoke-filled anymore. And that worries me, because they should be smoke-filled. But when Tim Geithner and Hank Paulson and Lloyd Blankfein were getting together and figuring out what to do about AIG, there was no smoke. So it turns out that it's not the smoke that's significant in these situations historically, it's the room. <laughs> it's the room because nobody else is there. And they're probably not taking notes if they are. We have, in other words, a conventional wisdom emerging that the problem was partly transparency. And if only we had more transparency, uh, then presumably it wouldn't happen again. But this is crap. This is wrong. And it's wrong for the following reasons. The key causes of the crisis were not secret at all. They were totally transparent. I knew exactly what was happening because it was public. I knew exactly when the subprime crisis would happen because I was shown a chart by somebody in New York showing when the majority of subprime mortgages would reset, when the interest rates would go from the teaser to the real rate. And it was absolutely clear that it would be the spring of 2007. So that was transparent. It couldn't have been more obvious. We have been moving, though perhaps we could have moved faster, away from non-transparent accounting in finance towards mark-to-market or fair-value accounting. Uh, that was one of the things that Goldman pioneered. It was ahead of the competition in that respect. 
So it wasn't as if there was a move in the direction of a lack of transparency. On the contrary, accounting was becoming more transparent. Banks were being forced to mark their assets uh, to market. In other words, to value them at the price they would fetch if they had to be sold on a given day. And most importantly of all, there was nothing secret about bank balance sheets. The institutions that blew up with the most devastating results uh, were banks. With a few exceptions, there was a big insurance company, AIG, and there were government-sponsored entities, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But it was essentially banks that blew up. The fact that they were leveraged 30 to 1 or 50 to 1 uh, in more than one case was not a secret. You only had to look at the published balance sheets to see that Royal Bank of Scotland was a disaster waiting to happen. And do rudimentary arithmetic to figure out the relationship of the assets and liabilities uh, to the underlying capital. So the idea that this was a crisis caused by lack of transparency is not plausible. And what's interesting is that if we had more transparency, and if we forced all the banks in the Western world today to mark their assets to market, about half of them would probably be insolvent. If anything, we should probably have somewhat less transparency in finance uh, for at least the next couple of years. Because there are so many unpleasant secrets currently being concealed by marking to model. Uh, I'm very nearly finished. We're still thinking why we, why we should trust the finance again. So here's a simple reason. We, we should trust um, banks because m most of them are, in fact, honest. They, they may have been incompetent. There was certainly a lot of incompetence. But most of them were not crooks. There were actually relatively few Bernie Madoffs uh, in this story. Here, here's a nice uh, bit of data from another recent article. Uh, this is survey data of uh, U.S. adults who were asked the number of lies they told in a 24-hour period. 60% of subjects report telling no lies at all. Of course, they may have been lying. That's the thing that worries me about this article. Uh, and, and, and interestingly, the, the article authors didn't make that point. Um, and almost half of all lies were told by only 5% of subjects. But were they the people who were honest uh, in their response? You can see the problem. So, yeah, probably, oh, no, 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 more than probably, very, very likely most bankers are not crooks. And therefore, we should be wary of their incompetence but not uh, distrust them as crooks. I have a better reason for regaining trust. Let's trust the ones that have handsome features, shall we? Uh, yesterday's wonderful interview uh, made the point that how we look is important. It's very important indeed. Actually, it's, it's, uh, it's not five seconds. It turns out that it's 100 milliseconds. Uh, trustworthiness judgments from facial appearance, approximate general valence evaluation of faces, and are made after as little as 100 milliseconds exposure to faces. So we, mi we might just start regaining trust. If, if Goldman could get somebody just a bit better looking than Lloyd to front them up, I mean, what about that? Let's get CEOs who really look good. That's, you know, I'm, if we believe the research on human psychology, that would be a more effective step towards regaining trust in banks than introducing mark-to-market accounting across the board. Now, there are all kinds of games that you can play to establish how faces determine uh, trust. I won't go into that. There isn't time. Penultimate idea for regaining trust. Uh, let's, let's launch a new, new thing that makes it all different. That always works. 
as my colleague Ken Rogoff and his co-author Carmen Reinhardt have pointed out, this time is different, is the most frequently used sentence in financial history, and it has been used again and again and again over eight centuries to persuade people that it won't go wrong this time. This is different. This is the Internet. This is securitization. This is Latin American debt, and so on and so forth. So a really simple way of regaining trust, I mean, history makes this clear, is just come up with something new and say it's different. And people will believe you. They always do. But the best reason to be cheerful is amnesia. I'm a historian. My business is to remember on behalf of everybody else. Uh, and what strikes me is that it really is a big responsibility because people really like to forget. They really like to forget the last crisis. They like to blot it out. Uh, and this, again, was something that Walter Badgett understood. Here's a great line. Credit is singularly varying. In England, after a great calamity, everybody is suspicious of everybody. As soon as the calamity is forgotten, everybody again confides in everybody. And guess what? Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? That's exactly what is already happening. Mm -hmm. Yes, folks, don't worry about trust. It's back. Uh, global business trust rise, driven by... This is again from Edelman. So trust in global in business in the US up 18% in, since 2009. Uh, in Italy... You have to admire the Italians, up 26%. <laughs> I guess Berlusconi does have quite a congenial face. That probably explains why. It's only gone down in Russia. So trust is back. It bounces back with amazing speed. Here's another indicator, again from Edelman. How much do you trust business to do what is right? Uh, 66% uh, in uh, China believe business will do the right thing. Uh, if you look at the U.S., yeah, last year it went down into the, uh, the low range into the mid-30s. It's back up at 51% right now. Uh, it's only Europeans, uh, but Europeans are always sceptical. They've been sceptical in the good times. They'll be sceptical in the bad times. It doesn't seem to make any difference at all. On to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing, the TED spread. The TED spread is a great measure of trust between banks. I told you how it blew out. Uh, when Goldman went bust, guess what? <coughs> it's back. And in fact, it's now at an even lower level than it was before the crisis uh, began. Now, that's partly because of growing uh, mistrust of American public finance. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, that really is another story. Thanks very much indeed. <laughs>